Good evening. I'm Elizabeth Barker, Stanford Calderwood Director of the Boston Athenaeum, and it's my great pleasure to welcome you to Boston Sink or Swim. Looking across this impressive assembly, I'm delighted to acknowledge the MIT students who have joined us here in the room and also online. I know their presence will enrich the questions during the Q&A period, and I hope that you'll look for the students in our group to speak with them during the reception. Before we begin, I need to ask that you take a moment to silence any noise-making devices and that you please heed the illuminated exit signs at the front and back of this room in case of an emergency. Nowadays, I think the Boston Athenaeum is best known for our broad and deep holdings in the humanities and for our art exhibitions. Our institution, however, has long been a site for scientific understanding. From our exhibition in 1838 of John James Audubon's Fresh Off the Press's Bird Prints, to the first public demonstration of the telephone given by Alexander Graham Bell in the room just next to this one in 1876, to the ongoing presentations offered by our conservation laboratory, one of the first to be established in any American library, set up in 1963. Tonight is sure to mark a new milestone in our history. It is my pleasure to introduce our moderator, Cynthia Barnhart, who will introduce our distinguished panelists. Dr. Barnhart is the MIT Chancellor and Ford Foundation Professor of Engineering, educated at the University of Vermont and at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. She previously served at MIT as Acting and Associate Dean of the School of Engineering, co-director of the Center for Transportation and Logistics, and founding director of the Transportation at MIT Initiative. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Cynthia Barnhart. Good evening, everyone. So it's my pleasure to introduce the panelists tonight. Uh, first, I'd like to introduce Carrie Emanuel. He is the Cecil and Ida Green Professor of Atmospheric Science and has been a member of the faculty of MIT's Department of Earth, Atmospheric, and Planetary Sciences, EAPS, since 1981. He has served as director of the Center for Meteorology and Physical Oceanography in EAPS, and in 2001, he co-founded the Lorentz Center for Climate Research. He is interested in fundamental properties of moist convection, including the scaling of convective velocities and the nature of the diurnal cycle of convection over land. And our second panelist tonight, Marcus Bueller, is a professor and head of MIT's Department of Civil and Environmental Engineering. He pursues research in advanced materials that offer greater resilience and a wide range of controllable properties from the nano to the micro scale, macro scale. His most recent book, Biomateriomics, presents a new paradigm for the analysis of bio-inspired materials and structures to devise sustainable technologies. He has received numerous awards and recognition, including the Harold E. Edgerton Faculty Achievement Award for the highest honor bestowed on young MIT faculty. And third, 
I'd like to introduce Alan Berger. He is professor of landscape architecture and urban design at MIT's Department of Urban Studies and Planning. He teaches courses open to the entire student body and is co-director of the MIT Center for Advanced Urbanism and founding director of the Project for Reclamation Excellence Lab at MIT. All of his research and work emphasizes the link between urbanization and consumption of natural resources and the waste and destruction of landscape to help us better understand how to proceed with redesigning around our wasteful lifestyles for more intelligent outcomes. Thank you. Well, good evening. It's uh, delightful to be here with all of you in this historical building at this usually beautiful time of year. I don't know about you, but September is my favorite month in New England. But in my business, which is the hurricane business, it's also a very dangerous month. And, and today marks the 77th anniversary of the, one of the worst disasters we've ever had in New England, the great New England hurricane of 1938, 77 years ago. At this moment, New Englanders were beginning to grasp <clears throat> how much of our beautiful uh, landscape and housing and so forth had been devastated by the storm, which in those days was completely unpredicted. Nobody knew on the morning of uh, the 21st of September that this was going to happen. Uh, science has come to our rescue in this respect. That is, it's very unlikely that we'll ever again be hit by a hurricane <clears throat> without any warning at all. But one of the things that we like to do is to understand what are the probabilities? When will be, what is the probability of having a storm of that magnitude? And what will it do to us if it happens? More to the point of what's happening this evening, I want to talk about how we are trying to grapple with the question of how climate change might change the probability of events like that. So I'm going to talk to you about uh, hurricane risk here in New England, both uh, currently and in the future. So the program is to begin with a very brief overview of New England hurricanes and go on to talk about uh, how we think these storms might be affected by climate change. Um, and then finally to talk a little bit about how we go about assessing in a quantitative scientific way the risk of hurricanes and how that risk might be changing. So just by way of a review, you've probably seen maps like this. This is a map showing the tracks of hurricanes around the world from 1945 to 2006. The colors are an indication of the magnitude of their winds at the time. And you can see by looking at that map that we are not immune from these storms up here. We've had uh, three really large events in our history and a considerable number of uh, somewhat smaller ones. So here are the tracks of some of the intense uh, hurricanes that have affected New England um, since, the, since we really started recording them at the beginning of the 17th century. So there was a very large one in uh, 1635, did a lot of damage in 1815. And then the one I just was talking about, the blue track you see on the left was 1938. Hurricane killed 600, more than 600 people leveled 80% of a lot of the forests of New England. It was really a terrible event. You can see some um, 
pictures there that were taken during this event illustrating what it is about these events that make them lethal. Well, we all think of them as windstorms, and of course they are. But in practice, the phenomena that do the most damage and take the most lives are the storm surge, which is hydrodynamically basically the same thing as a tsunami, but it's driven by wind rather than by shaking seafloor. But it arrives in the middle of a terrible storm. And most people don't really have a way of visualizing what it looks like. But if you've seen some of the terrible videos of the recent tsunamis in the Pacific and Indian Oceans, then you'll have some conception of that. The other killer is freshwater flooding from very heavy rains. These are the sorts of phenomena that we'd like to understand the risk of in New England, even if the climate weren't changing, but on top of that, how they might evolve with the climate. One of the problems we have around the world, but particularly in New England, is that if you want to do statistics on historical events as a guide to the future, you don't have a lot to work with. Um, so in New England, I mentioned we've had three rather large hurricanes. But if you look at the United States as a whole, it turns out that uh, more than 50% of the damage normalized so that it's really effective in a particular year was caused by simply eight events in our history. Eight events did more than half the advantage. Eight isn't a very large number if you're a statistician. You'd like to have a lot more than that. Uh, more than 90% of the damage has been caused by storms of Saffir-Simpson category three and larger. But those storms are, only constitute 13% of the total number of events. In other words, they're relatively rare. And so people who like to count storms and who are obsessed with how many hurricanes we might have in the future versus the past are missing the point. It's not the number of hurricanes, it's the number of intense hurricanes that you have to worry about. So we just don't have enough history of landfalling storms, even in a place like Florida, to do a good job assessing the long-term risk. So at MIT, we've sort of taken a different tack. said, you know, there are many different ways of knowing about the world. One is certainly history, the most obvious thing, but the other is physics, science. Uh, we know enough about hurricanes that we can use physics to help us understand the risk and how that might change. So we augment our understanding of history. And I'm going to tell you about this technique because it has some very interesting analogs in biology. What we do is we take a climate data set, a coarse grain climate set of the whole world that doesn't really have hurricanes in it, but tells us how the temperature and the winds vary over time. And we begin by throwing into this climate state little hurricane seeds. You go down to the garden store and you buy a package of hurricane seeds and you toss them into the climate state. And um, the easy part is to figure out where they're gonna go because they basically just move with the air currents, uh, which are part of the known climate state. And the hard part is to decide whether they're gonna survive. So those seeds are uh, become, or they're simulated with a very uh, accurate but very fast computer model that we've actually started out by using it for weather forecasting. And it's still being used around the world, for example, by the US Navy for this purpose. And what that model predicts is that about 98% of the seeds you put down just die, which is about my success rate as a gardener, amateur gardener, by the way, something. And uh, it's so it's survival of the fittest, only the seeds you put down in places which are conducive to storms develop go. And we regard those as constituting, for that given large-scale climate state, the hurricane climatology of that state. 
So in other words, knowing the large scale climate from, for example, observations of the climate state, we can generate an unlimited number of events that are statistically and physically consistent with that climate. So for example, here is a uh, set of just a thousand tracks of these sort of randomly simulated storms uh, that were generated using a European analysis of the climate over the last 30 years or so. So we have the coarse grain state. In practice, we can generate easily generate 100,000 of these events. Now, when you start generating 100,000 events, the statisticians become happier. You know, that's a lot better than eight. And we can start to understand. Now, of course, the first step is to really understand whether these are any good. And there, you have to rigorously compare what you've done with history. Um, so to give you an example of the power of that technique, here's a chart that shows on the bottom axis something called the return period, which is the average sort of interval between events, whose magnitudes, and this is for storms affecting New England, are given by the, the numbers on the uh, left-hand axis in the quaint uh, nautical units of knots, nautical miles per hour. The green dots are an assessment based strictly on history, and the blue dots are an assessment based on a fairly limited number of these synthetic events, something like 5,000 of them. And uh, you can see that you can, um, you can uh, assess the probability of much rarer events by using physics to augment history. You can go much further out on that risk curve. So what, how do you interpret this? Well, every, uh, every 500 years or so, New England should see a storm with a magnitude of about 110 knots. All right? That would be a very rare event. We can get further out that curve, depending upon the application. The Nuclear, Nuclear Regulatory Commission wants us to assess the million-year event, because they want to design power plants that will take an event whose probability is that small. Once we have the hurricanes, we can go for the really interesting things, which are the storm surges, by coupling this wind model to a, a hydrodynamic model of storm surges. And these are actually, it's actually an easier problem, the storm surge problem. Um, we integrate these equations governing the, the flow of water on grids, such as the one you saw uh, there. And we were asked to do this for the southern tip of Manhattan about seven or eight years ago before Hurricane Sandy. And so we did, and we ran a large number of events there. Um, here is a, uh, the same kind of uh, chart I showed you before. It's the return period. So 10, 100,000, 10,000 years on the bottom axis. And the, um, the height of the surge in meters, okay, in this case, at the um, battery, which is at the southern tip of Manhattan. And um, the green curve is just the surge itself. The black has the effects of astronomical tide as well. And so uh, Sandy's uh, surge was 2.8 meters. And you can see on this chart that we would have expected a surge like that every four or 500 years. And we did that before Sandy, OK? So by that analysis, Sandy was a very rare event for New York. Now, we can easily, run, just as easily, run this kind of simulation on future climates. But instead of seeding the current climate, we seed the output of a climate model. Now, that's getting to be a little more dangerous because the climate models are now making predictions. They're not simply analyzing past climates, and they differ from each other. Um, and we have done this uh, recently for Boston, for example. So what you see on this chart 
um, is for two periods of time. The blue dots are from 1981 to 2000, and the red dots are from 2081 to 2100. And in this case, the return period you see is on the left-hand axis in years, and on the right-hand axis are uh, storms affecting Boston by category. And the shading you see represents the disagreement among the four or five models that we use to do this. So you see, for example, that category three hurricanes in the current climate uh, might affect um, Boston every uh, 100 years or so, something like that, in the current climate, but in the future climate every 10 or 20 years. Um, and of course, there's uncertainty in that. And as you go out to the very high category, the absolute frequencies become small and the uncertainty becomes larger. This is giving you some, a flavor for the sorts of things that we're doing, but what we see when we do this invariably is increased risk. Now this doesn't, I haven't done this yet for storm surge. When you do this for storm surge, you also have to account for the fact, and you'll hear more about this in a minute from the other two speakers, that sea level is rising. And that all by itself increases the risk of surge. Here is a chart showing projected changes in sea level going out to the year 2090, uh, depending upon what we do with carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, could go up between one and one and a half meters or so. Um, that's a lot, actually. And then here is a, uh, this is not for Boston, but for the US as a whole, uh, an estimate done by um, the risky business team led by former Mayor Michael Bloomberg in New York showing um, how they expect the damages done by hurricanes to change. Uh, blue is for uh, the, uh, basically the period we live in now. And um, uh, then you go out, sorry, the, the blue and green pairs, the blue does not uh, take into account sea level rise. The green uh, takes into account storms and sea level rise. And so as you go out to the year 2100, you start to see big differences uh, that reflect the fact that sea level is rising and storms are also becoming more severe. So let me just quickly wrap up. Um, New England history is too short, sparse, and although I didn't talk about it, imperfect uh, to estimate hurricane risk. Better estimates can be made essentially by augmenting history with physics, two different ways of knowing our world. And the founders of the Athenaeum were very conscious of that, which is why you see uh, signs of both of those endeavors here. And um, New England hurricanes clearly vary with climate. Uh, we do have them, um, and it looks as though threats from these storms in this particular part of the world will increase over the century. I'm sorry to end on that downer, but that's life. Thank you very much. Good evening. Um, great to be here. Thanks for hosting us tonight. Um, so I'm visiting here from the MIT Department of Civil and Environmental Engineering. So I'll show you um, what we can do as engineers to maybe help mitigate some of those challenges we're facing um, in building a resilient future, as we titled it here. And I'm going to show you really a couple of slides and ideas and things going on in the department, things we're thinking about, and to really start the conversation later in the panel. So we're concerned about rising sea levels, as mentioned, as one of the outcomes of changing climates. Um, we're also thinking about 
the build environment, as civil engineers, we are very concerned about the structure we've, structures we've built and value created. And you can see a lot of the high value properties really are at the ocean and they're um, going to be prone to potential flooding and other damages. Beach erosion is something we've seen in several of the past storms we've had in New England the last uh, 10 years or so. And of course, really damaging property of various kinds along those lines. Um, we have also some very serious concerns in infrastructure, and so if we're using the T or um, we're just concerned about that electricity grid, uh, extreme storms, flooding, um, extreme events really can damage infrastructure. And we've had a couple of examples last winter, um, the outfalls of the T system and so forth, which are really events that are um, pushing the infrastructure to the limits of operation, and we're thinking about how to address this. Uh, this can happen to roads here. Um, you can imagine if infrastructure crumbles, um, um, we're uh, affecting people's ability to drive, to commute, to produce, um, and um, we're also worried about diseases um, that might spread. As climate is changing, we might have new disease vectors um, that actually live here in the Boston area, New England area. So those are the sort of broad topics we're, um, we're thinking about, and I'll show you um, in the department, we're really thinking very globally and broad in addressing these. Um, in making changes to a built environment, the network infrastructure, cyber physical systems, so those systems like the electricity grid, the transportation system, and the way they're controlled, and the natural environment, because these are very closely interrelated systems, and we span um, all the scales um, from the um, very fine scale of nature and ecology, uh, all the way to the global systems like climate uh, along those lines, and we call it big engineering, because we build big things and engineer big things to hopefully create the resiliency that we need to meet the future needs. And, uh, I'll share with you now um, just a few examples of work going on at MIT uh, that um, might uh, sort of give you a sense of what the opportunities are for engineers to deal with these challenges uh, in structures, infrastructure systems, uh, as well as environment. Um, this is um, a student, Justin Chen, uh, who developed a new technology in using image analysis to detect failures and cracks and fractures in buildings. So this is a way, if you have an extreme event, to detect where the failures actually have occurred without having to physically inspect the building. So we can basically take pictures and analyze vibrations. Uh, that's, of course, a huge advantage in addressing the, in, in mitigating effects after disasters have, have um, actually occurred. Um, we're also developing new materials to resist fracture in the first place. So if you looked at this road segment I've shown before, it cracked because it's not very flexible. It's not very strong and tough. So we're developing materials that overcome limitations of current materials that are either strong and flexible, um, like glass, um, or very flexible, like weak plastic, uh, to basically combine both properties and being very strong, very tough, but also flexible enough to, to sustain very large deformations um, and making these materials applicable to infrastructure. Um, we're also looking at nature. Um, so a lot of these solutions for new materials we can find actually in natural materials like seashells, nacre, and other materials. There's a lot of interesting things going on in using nanotechnology that we've actually seen and watched in nature and translating them to engineering solutions. Um, and there's a big effort at MIT. Now, if you sort of look into the history books, um, we have had other cities and areas that have actually dealt with flooding, and this is an example of Venice, and our department has been involved in uh, dealing with Venice flooding um, for a long time, and in fact, in Venice, uh, you can sort of see the uh, effect of, of, of events per year has increased steadily, and the way Venice addressed this, Italy addressed this, is by building these uh, very large floodgates by using this big engineering concept, really building things at the scale of kilometers in size, and you might have seen those, those are these floodgates uh, that they've built. This is uh, work by uh, Professor Chiang Mei, 
um, who basically, these floodgates basically protect the floods from coming in in, in, in the case of an extreme event. Now, not, nothing maybe that we can use here in Boston, but that's something that worked in Italy um, because of the particular lagoon structure you can see here. You can have just a couple of inlets that you can control. Uh, this will not work in Boston, so we're gonna have to think about other, other ideas. Now, sort of shifting gears, um, when you think about large-scale infrastructure, you think about the electricity grid, the transportation grid, uh, the electricity grid in particular is one that we're very prone to extreme events, and you know that if there's a small event, uh, malfunction, it can really cascade the effect of entire regions. We have also seen this about 10 years ago in New York. Um, and uh, those are the kinds of questions we're thinking about. How do we make our infrastructure more resilient? And today's infrastructure is really built um, without any resilience. Um, but built in a very expensive way. And once it breaks, it's very, very expensive to fix. And so our engineers, scientists, are trying to find ways of building infrastructure that has built-in resiliency and can actually be repaired much more easily. This is uh, work by Professor Sarab Amin, who's really um, interested in defining various resiliency mechanisms in the electricity grid, the water distribution grid, transportation networks, um, and using basically the opportunity of new threats um, as a way of creating new technologies that we can hopefully actually export from the Boston area where we can prototype them around in the world. Um, and this is a picture from the snowstorm. So these are things happening, of course, um, as Professor Emmanuel showed, for many years we've dealt with extreme events. This is another type, extreme snowstorms here. Um, this was last winter, you remember. Um, the entire T system was broken down basically for, I think, weeks or months, um, time to recover. Um, so there's really very little resiliency built in when these large-scale infrastructure systems are um, in any way attacked or um, exposed to extreme events. Uh, and of course, there's the flooding, right? So this is an example here of the Boston area, uh, current flood zone, and um, this was um, mentioned in the previous presentation. Um, as the sea level rises and extreme events rise, this is sort of a future flood zone, and really this um, is quite eye-opening uh, what we're gonna have to deal with. So. All the infrastructure, uh, you can imagine the transportation infrastructure, the, the freeways, highways, um, is all going to be exposed to very singular threats uh, in this network system. And how is this going to cascade in the entire New England network? And those are the types of things we're thinking about. Uh, this is something you, um, you can definitely, from your own experience, probably have had some analysis in your head. Um, how often did you lose power? How often did you have disruptions? In fact, the numbers are going up because we have more extreme events. Uh, and so we're really seeing that the infrastructure, because of various pressures, climate, uh, increasing populations, more density, are really pushed to the limit, and we have to find ways of mitigating these effects. So we're not really growing up here. These are service interruptions um, that are, of course, very damaging for the economy. And so the gap that we're having here is really connecting the climate signs you've heard about before, hurricanes, um, with engineering solutions, and this is exactly what we're uh, addressing in the Department of Civil and Environmental Engineering, is we're making this link between the natural system, the ecology here, um, and how to design better infrastructure and how to operate the infrastructure, because we realize the investment of building the infrastructure is only a small piece of the pie. It's actually how to operate the infrastructure and how we're being able to repair it. Um, and so the work we're doing, a lot of this has to do with sensing and um, adding sensors at the right places and adding control systems allow us to use different control strategies in actually addressing extreme events of various kinds. Um, and with this, um, I wanna show you a graph on the right um, that illustrates this. On the left-hand side, you see an electricity network here. Uh, and these two nodes here are being um, taken out by a hurricane, extreme event, lightning, a snowstorm, 
anything uh, could be. On the right-hand side, on the top, you see the voltage. And the one on the top really is sort of the easiest to, I think, uh, with a takeaway message. Without any control, the voltage goes down, and basically the whole system collapses and no power. And cascades, right? The whole network might actually um, collapse. And with the control, the smart control implemented, we can recover voltage um, very, very quickly in this, in this process. Those are the, some of the technologies that we're very excited about because they're currently not implemented, and you can see what kind of um, benefiting results they can have if they're actually implemented. Um, the good thing about these technologies is they don't have to be expensive. These sensors actually are very inexpensive. The difficult thing is to know where to place them and to know how to control them. And this is what Professor Amin is working on in finding out um, where exactly to place the sensors to have the most information with the least sensors to be the cheapest solution and then use the list, this information to make smart decisions in operating the infrastructure. There's a lot of room for innovation in um, pretty much all the cities around the country and a really good opportunity for the United States to lead in this, in this area. Uh, and there are many other interesting opportunities in connecting water and food, um, the global equation really in how climate interact, intersects with food security, air quality. This is a great story I want to tell you about Professor El-Tahir. Uh, who studies the intersection of climate and disease. And um, so his question is, can we have dengue fever in the US? And uh, you would probably say, no, hopefully not. But actually, um, uh, the issue is uh, not that far away. Um, this is the disease vector for this um, dengue, uh, mos this mosquito. And basically, this mosquito doesn't live here. It lives in Africa and certain places in the world. It doesn't live as north as Boston. However, with climate change, rising temperatures, um, different kind of climates, uh, we're going to see this disease vector be pushed northern. And you can see how this looks today. So you have in Africa, South America, and in the future, this might be pushed northern. And if um, this disease vector were to live here in the ecosystem, you can see the spread of disease like this could happen within just a few years. This was um, the history. It's in the news every August here of the West Nile virus. And in fact, it took about four years to spread from New England, probably Massachusetts, uh, throughout the entire country. Um, and something like this could happen potentially to this other uh, disease. So we have to understand what are the ecosystems, how do we control the spread of this disease vector, uh, and other questions. Also, we have pressures now. If you um, are shifting gears, um, imagining um, having more and more people living in Boston in the world. We have population growth. So I think 10 billion is estimated, maybe 20 billion. Um, how are we going to live? What kind of airports are we going to have? And are you safe at an airport, right? So if you go into this airport, the infrastructure, train, airport, planes, planes get bigger, um, can you be infected? And this is work by Professor Lydia Baruba, um, who joined our faculty just a few years ago, uh, studying the mechanics of disease transmission. And it's quite striking today, um, if we look at disease um, transmission regulations from the CDC for Ebola and other diseases, they're basically from the 1900s. So it's 100 plus years old. And um, there are no better theories out there. And so Lydia's work really addresses this in developing mechanistic theories to bring the disease transmission mechanism really up to the century. Um, so the transmission of the disease is really like a black box. There's not much known about it, very empirical data. But it's really critical if we imagine having a disease outbreak in the infrastructure in the city and urban centers to understand really how safe we are and what we need to do to mitigate these, these, these kind of outbreaks. Um, and this is particularly driven by population density. Uh, you can see the future challenge projections. We have a huge population growth with triple population here, uh, estimated by 2050, um, since 1900. Uh, and those bring these kinds of pressures. We've never ever had in the history of humanity so many people in such close space, right? And all these diseases we have thought are maybe eradicated uh, could potentially return. So we really need to understand how to build the infrastructure, how to build buildings, skyscrapers, ventilation systems, trains, airplanes, um, and how to move people around in a safe way. 
under these, under these pressures. Um, the department also, we feel um, civil environmental engineering has a huge potential innovation. I mentioned it a couple of times. Uh, these are opportunities we see as engineers um, to create new companies, new technologies. So we've had a couple of events for the years um, in bringing students uh, and postdocs and faculty together and trying to think about new ways, new company ideas. And, and finding sponsors and entrepreneurs to actually fund these companies and create new startups because all these problems I've shown are big and uh, we need new creative entrepreneurs to create the apples of the future, Facebooks of the future and solve these kind of problems. That's our goal in the department and we start really um, at the level of sophomores. So this is a class we're teaching actually this fall, Professor Pedro Rice, who is um, a gentleman here, um, teaches this class. We number all the classes at MIT. This is one 101, we're course one civil engineering, the oldest department, um, and it's 1101. And Pedro has this um, really exciting class this year where it's a hands-on introduction to civil environmental engineering design and really in understanding the city of the future under all these different pressures. And so we're educating the students uh, in trying to come up with designs, uh, prototypes, and we used the Olympic bid actually as an initial idea. It wasn't successful, and so we basically shifted, like I think the mayor did also, to Boston 2030, and so we're, we're still very excited about this. Um, and, um, and we actually have uh, one of the students here tonight, so I think she'll be somewhere in the background. You can ask her about, about this class. And so I wanted to show you this. MIT is a really hands-on place, and we um, really do the science and the engineering really well. We have startups. We also have students, and the students learn by doing it at MIT, and we can see a bunch of the students sitting around here. And basically, as soon as they come to MIT, they actually uh, get their hands dirty, and they build things. They use the math of science. Uh, and they address the, uh, the real challenges we're facing with, like shown on the, right hand, on the left hand side here. So we're very excited about this and I want to end here by, by saying that um, there are huge challenges and I, some of the uh, images I've shown really, really illustrate, I think, the kinds of events, the kinds of pressures, the infrastructure, the environment is exposed to these days. Um, but they're really great opportunities and we have great people uh, at MIT and in the community here in Boston to address these. Um, and we're very excited about this. We actually have a, if you're interested in discussing beyond today, we're having an, a conference um, at MIT on November 20th about infrastructure innovation and changing environment, really to bring together leaders um, from around the world, really, in addressing um, those kind of questions in a one-day-long conference. Um, so thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for coming this evening. Uh, thank you also to the Athenaeum uh, and also to MIT for hosting this really important event together. Uh, climate change is going to affect all of us, and so we'll see level rising. So I'm going to focus specifically on, on Boston after I show you a few slides just to give you some background. In case you forgot, I'm the last speaker here. So I'm Alan Berger. I'm a professor at MIT, but I'm also co-director of a new center called the Center for Advanced Urbanism. In case you haven't heard of it, I wanted to give you a sense of what we're doing. We're a three-year-old center. Uh, we focus on research and design. And really, um, we have one mission, uh, one really strong mission, to focus on innovative solutions that deal with urban problems anywhere in the world. And we do that by building interdisciplinary teams that uh, focus on research and design together. 
The CAU builds interdisciplinary teams from MIT's incredible faculty and student resources. I, I will just stress incredible. Uh, we have more than 35 affiliated faculty that work with us now, along with their students and researchers, and we span more than 20 fields of knowledge. And one of the topics that we're now working on is resilience planning. What is resilience planning? It's a new, it's really a new field for urban designers and for planners and even for cities. Um, in describing what resilience planning is, I want to talk about how CAU, the Center for Advanced Urbanism, tackles resilience research. And I want to illustrate this using a project that we recently completed with an organization that hopefully will be working in Boston soon called RBD, Rebuild by Design. And we worked with them following Hurricane Sandy, Superstorm uh, Sandy in New York. We were one of 10 teams that were selected from a pool of over 150 to apply resilient design strategies to the Sandy impacted areas. And our team began with a comprehensive research analysis of New York City's critical infrastructure. And I have to say this, being someone who grew up in the tri-state area around New York, I was actually astonished by our own findings. 75% of New York's vital power and storage networks lie in the Meadowlands under the 100-year floodplain. So it's no mystery why New York blacked out. This is our project. Uh, it didn't just show up in one day. This is about six months' worth of work. It's called Meadowband. And Meadowband reclaims the storm buffering functions of the degraded Meadowlands wetlands while also protecting infrastructure vital to New York City, including utilities, transportation links, and warehousing, including food warehousing. The proposal tries to protect, connect, and grow, and it wraps the Meadowlands with a thick band of these protected levees. We top the levees with transportation circuits and then behind the levees, we raise all of the new development opportunities to a 500-year level. So I, I want to make a point, which is usually when you see maps and images of what sea level rise and climate change and storm surges are going to do to cities, usually the developers flee the room. Um, you know, we see a big opportunity to redevelop the right way, and that should be part of the conversation. So I want to share one of the most unique uh, insider stories about the RBD process was that we were not evaluated like a typical design competition where you make designs, you put them up, and the, and the prettiest one wins. We were really evaluated on who had stakeholders that would build their projects. That's what's unique about RBD if they come to Boston. Stakeholder support was a huge part of this project. And when a big storm hits, usually Cities aren't prepared. Congress eventually allots funding, and then projects have to get imagined so that we have projects that we can build. And that's a long period of time. You're looking at 10 years down in New Orleans. You know, we don't want to be in that situation here in Boston. We want to have, and if there's one critical lesson we can learn from Katrina and Sandy is we need to have, we need to have shovel-ready projects if something hits here. So we need both design, planning, but we also need stakeholders to be involved in this before the disaster strikes. Otherwise, we're going to be looking at a decade plus trying to put our projects on the ground. So how should Boston prepare? As you've heard already, it's pretty difficult to predict 
what would happen, yet alone map these events here uh, with cost and certainty in Boston. Um, Boston's modeling is made even more problematic because we're uh, impacted by nor'easters, which are in um, scientific terms extra tropical. So they're even more difficult to model. One assumption though is that, and I think this is a universal agreement, these guys can back me up on this if, if it isn't, um, is that if we have a historic nor'easter with a storm surge with anything close to two level of sea level rise with a category one hurricane, um, basically Boston is wiped out. Category one with two levels, two, two feet of sea level rise. So the risk after mid-century is incredibly high. Um, so we have to act now. We have enough time. So same as New York, we began studying uh, Boston. The majority of the critical infrastructure is highly vulnerable to flooding. It's no mystery. This map that we created has all the infrastructure. It's based on the Federal Emergency Management Agencies, or FEMA's maps. They're flood maps, which are used by the insurance industry. And if you don't know this already, in 2016, Boston it will most likely implement these maps. It's going to impact a number of homes and businesses with new flood insurance requirements. It will also prepare us better. So in what follows, uh, I want to focus on what we've been modeling for Boston. Um, CAU's researchers have been looking at flooding based on current topography and current data. That's the best we have. We wanted to see two things. One, the population impact, and two, the housing impact at different height events. And we're looking at both of these uh, categories, housing and population, flooding from the inside, meaning water in the city and the streets, but also flooding from the outside, storm surge coming in. Um, this is a category one hurricane event. It has a peak tidal height of 12 feet with storm surge. That's about a quarter million people impacted and about 116,000 housing units. It's category one. Category two has about a 15 foot peak level of storm height with surge. Um, now you can start to see in the map, there's a little bit of in inland flooding happening from the precipitation that can't get out of the city. This is a little bit over a half a million people impacted and about a quarter million housing units impacted. Category three, surge height of 20 feet. You can see inland flooding is widespread. 647,000 people are impacted, 293,000 housing units. And the dreaded category four, uh, surge height of 25 feet at maximum peak. And you can see all the water infiltration points are points that we actually determine by walking around and mapping. These are real points. There's a lot of them. 741,000 people are impacted, 335,000 housing units in 27 towns. And this is not even the most vulnerable people uh, who are the socially vulnerable data set laid on top of this is over 100,000 people that are impacted. And those are people who are at the bottom structure of the socioeconomic class in vulnerable areas. So from another perspective, if you take these maps, sort of get them out of your head, and just think of one number, six total feet of water. 
So if you have sea level rise plus a really big rainstorm, six total feet of water, Boston is in big trouble. Boston is wiped out. Our current dams won't stop the water from going up our rivers. So we face really three threats. One, flooding from within due to uh, paved surfaces, impervious surfaces, and stormwater runoff that can't get out. Number two, flooding from the outside from storm surges. And number three, sea level rising. And as the Dutch engineers have recently figured out, building big walls around our harbor, just like in, um, in the Netherlands, can trap water inside of the city. They call it the bathtub effect. And this is just as problematic. So we have another idea to share with you tonight. Um, while we anticipate that future modeling approaches, including some of Kerry's work, um, is going to show us the benefit and cost-benefit analysis to help decision makers make better policy, we want to show you CAU's modeling, which is really the art of the possible with what we call resilient districting. And this is not a model of Boston. It's a generic model just to lay out what a resilient district is for you. Why do we make resilient districts instead of placing a huge wall around the harbor of Boston? Well, um, I'll say this, I guess, straightforward. I'll be real candid with you. I think we have mega project fatigue. Um, and we also have an infrastructural funding problem, uh, an infrastructural inertia uh, in the United States. And I believe with our researchers' um, approach to this is we think we need a more incremental approach. Rather than wait for a big wall, we have to start now. So we have a more incremental approach. That's the districting idea. And it's based on incrementalism. And so in the next slides, I want to show you how our model works. Number one, there's four steps. Uh, first is the obvious one that you heard uh, from Marcus. We got to protect critical infrastructure with engineered barriers. That's a no-brainer. Um, this means energy, especially in Boston gas, which we get 60% of our energy supply. Food storage, it's all in the, in the flood zone. Potable sanitary water supplies and sanitation removal. Let's build the barriers now. Second, identify a thick line of soft infrastructural defenses that combine elements of the city that are already there, elements of the fabric, and leverage current thick lines such as combinations of highways and buildings and dams and walls and topography to build thicker lines that are attached. From these thick lines, you can expand soft, absorptive infrastructure. You can build breakwaters, locks, channels, new topography, absorptive open spaces, and even sponge parks that can be used as recreation and open space when they're dry, which will be most of the time. Uh, there's two more levels to this. This is the third level, which is, and these two are more controversial, um, so please bear with me, transfer density out of the most vulnerable areas. We call this upzoning, locate uh, density in people out of the most vulnerable areas through upzoning. As urban planners, we love this concept. We can create a more cohesive urban design. We can build denser cores. And we can have clear evacuation facilities and safe zones. We also believe this will lead to much more efficient city services. And fourth, downzoning, which should occur in the most vulnerable low-lying areas. The new FEMA maps are going to catalyze this process, and insurance rates uh, and restrictive zoning will go along with that. 
so it's not that far-fetched. Um, the, the down zone areas become the first line of defense, clearly, on the water's edge, and they should hold flexible land uses, such as uh, industrial buildings with their, their critical infrastructures raised two or three stories up, expansive parks and trail systems and wetlands. And these are the four concepts in a generic model. Now, what does it look like? What does resilient districting look like in Boston? So we ran one scenario for you tonight. Who lives in Charlestown? Okay, so only two of you might flee the room. Uh, it's all, this is only a scenario, so don't be alarmed. Uh, I'm gonna run through the larger area and show you what districting looks like in Boston. And resilient districting goes, remember the first step is to identify critical infrastructure and quickly protect it. This is our energy, transportation, and storage infrastructure lying in highly vulnerable areas. And there it is. Number two, build a thick line of defense. Follow the critical infrastructures and build off of them uh, and build redundancy into the system. So if there's one break in one wall, it doesn't flood the entire city. Think of Katrina, one breach, and that was it. So we need redundancy, and our districting plan allows for some redundancy. Three, down zone in the critical areas, low-lying areas with the FEMA maps, using that as an aid along with new zoning controls, and dare I say, create a new agency to upzone, uh, upzone and rethink of the city of the future. This is our big opportunity. Um, and we believe a Boston Resilience Authority would be the perfect acronym BRA uh, for this. <laughs> and this is what it looks like. We broke Boston into three uh, districts based on where the critical infrastructure currently exists. And these are natural, natural peninsulas, natural places to break down based on where the infrastructure already exists. And lastly, I'm gonna run through District A, one district, this is Charlestown. Okay, so one, protect critical infrastructure, that's in gray. Number two, find the thick lines, leverage them, and build thick, soft infrastructural lines of defense with redundancy. Number three, you should know these by now, down zoning in the low-lying areas, most vulnerable people, most vulnerable ecosystem. And number four, the new BRA comes to upzone the high ground and there's plenty of development opportunity to rethink the city of the future. This is the fully conceptualized resilient district of Charlestown. And lastly, this is uh, what Charlestown looks like today, and this is what it would look like after resilient districting along the water's edge. Beautiful, I would live there. Uh, and of course, during a hurricane with 12 feet of surge, this is actually 12 feet of surge, we mapped it. And I would say that no MIT presentation about the future of our city or the urban world would be complete without a little bit of innovation. So we have included in this, uh, you can see the vehicles in the water, these are our own, still to be funded and developed, uh, autonomous amphibious evacuation vehicles. And notice the lights on the building. Those are GPS, Internet of Things connected location beacons that double as escape route lighting when the electricity perhaps shuts down. Thank you.
Thank you. Can you hear me? Great. Um, thank you, all of you. That was fabulous. Uh, I think what I'll do is I'll begin by asking a couple of questions of our panelists before opening it to all of you. Uh, so why don't I begin with you, Carrie? Um, so can you tell me what policy changes might help New England deal with existing and evolving risk? That's an interesting question. It's, uh, there's a very tight interplay between policy and risk, especially in the United States, uh, where in effect, without having ever deliberately planned to do so, we heavily subsidize risk taking. Uh, in terms of people living and building in risky areas. We do that through the regulation of insurance rates. We do that through the provision of federal flood insurance, which, which whose premiums don't really reflect the risk. And we do that through the way we've structured federal disaster relief. And all this has the effect over the long run of encouraging people to build uh, in places that are risky. Um, usually price communicates risk, but we don't really allow that to happen effectively. In other parts of the world where they don't have these regulations, um, they're, actually, they're actually much better fortified against risks of phenomena like typhoons than the US. Thank you. Marcus, um, so climate change is a threat, but aren't there also major opportunities for economic development? Is this an opportunity to develop Boston and the area, area as leaders in technology and resilient infrastructure? Yeah, I think, um, in, indeed I think, yeah, I think the, um, the threats we've seen and the examples I've shown in the slides really um, point to really exciting actually opportunities for new technologies that we haven't had a need for for the past hundred years and we've built infrastructure really um, very expensive without really thinking about how to upgrade the infrastructure and how to repair the infrastructure. And, uh, that particular issue is a really good opportunity, I think, in inventing new technologies and sensing and control and managing infrastructure, maintaining infrastructure, repairing infrastructure, that if we applied here, as I said, and we can test it out here, um, it could easily be exported uh, really throughout the world, definitely throughout the United States, um, and um, there are many coastal areas with threats, and we can, we can apply those there. So I see really innovative opportunities for civil engineering, environmental engineering, um, driven by these threats, making it into really an exciting opportunity for the future. Yeah. Thank you. So, Alan, you talked about resilience districts and showed us an example. Can you give us some more insight into the concept? Sure. Thanks. Thanks, Cynthia. Uh, so that's fresh in your mind, so I don't have to go too deep into the, into the answer to this question, uh, thank, thankfully. Resilient districting, so the, the general idea with resilient districting is, as opposed to, say, building a gigantic $50 billion flood wall around the entire harbor of, of Boston, is redundancy and having shovel-ready projects. So building stakeholder support is much easier to do if you break the city down into a bunch of smaller pieces, and our, our natural geography allows for that. And number two, you want redundancy in your protection, and so each neighborhood with their stakeholder group can work on a redundancy, a set of redundancy designs built into the engineering that can be programmed for the desires of those stakeholders in those neighborhoods. I don't think necessarily we have that one wall that looks the same as the wall in the next neighborhood. Each district can have its own identifiable redundant infrastructure and that's the idea of the building stakeholder support, 
building the resilient district and allowing for shovel-ready projects before we sit around waiting for Congress to hand, right, hand the funds out after the disaster, then it's too late. It's going to take too long. Thank you. So I'd like to open it up to all of you and see who would like to ask questions. And I also want to tell you that in addition to this group, there's a little competition. We have people tuning in online, and they should be putting in some questions as well. So why don't we begin on this side over here. There will be a microphone coming around. <clears throat> Can you tell us what MIT is doing in your own infrastructure, in your own buildings right now to defend against these events? <laughs> That's for Cindy. You would like that one. Well, I, I'll start with one thing because uh, MIT has a major uh, group of people that are looking at the issue of sustainability. And that's an issue that has come up. And so we're just beginning to do this first by assessing what is MIT's flooding risk. Um, and there is actually a lot of risk that comes from the combination of a storm surge at the Charles River Dam and a lot of freshwater flooding. So uh, we're only, as far as I know, beginning to tackle that. But perhaps you could enlighten us further on that. Yeah, there's student yeah. groups. Students are very proactive in doing this. And I think it's terrific. The students are pushing, I think, the faculty and the administration to really think very hard about, about these issues. Um, and I have to say, MIT's been around for the infrastructure for more than uh, 100 years, 100, 100 years, I think, this year, my campus in Cambridge. Um, and so we're dealing with a lot of infra infrastructure renewal because we're refurbishing the buildings. And there's an opportunity, I think, as we're doing this, to do it in the right way, in a smart way, addressing potential threats. So there's a lot of activity beginning. Yeah. Yep. Okay. And there's a question right beside you. Thank you. Uh, this is probably a practical question, or maybe too practical for this evening, but I wonder if off the record all of you might comment on the proposed FEMA maps and the heights that are being proposed in New England. If, oh, could could you say that again? I it's think we didn't. I wonder if off the record you might... <laughs> off the record. You might all comment on the proposed new FEMA maps and the heights that are being proposed. <laughs> they haven't turned off the webcams. <laughs> well, I mean, I, uh, I'll, I'll make a pass at this. I, I, I do like off the record. That's that's a that's an interesting way to put it. So, um, you know, at some point, so you know, if you if you know, how, first of all, how are FEMA maps created? Um, so one of the questions you have, to, you have to ask yourself is, where do these maps come from? Uh, do they come from a political process? Do they come from a scientific process? I think um, the answer is probably um, not so clear to most people. And I think um, out of necessity, they probably come from a little bit of both. Um, because I think it's really important to understand that this is not resilience planning is not just a scientific problem. It's a social problem. And it's an economic issue. And on top of all of it, it's a big environmental concern. And so the question isn't, um, for me, uh, are the maps correct or the maps incorrect? Or 
does a property I own now all of a sudden get levied a big insurance premium? Really, the, the question we should all be asking is what is going to begin the process of, cat catalyze the process of rethinking the water's edge and rethinking the way we zone the city? And in that sense, the FEMA maps are a great catalyst. Are there properties not correct? Um, are, there, are there some political, probably political trade-offs in those maps? All maps are, to some degree, subjective. There are no objective maps now. So you know, I hope that answers your question. I'll, on the record, I'm happy to go on the record with that. <laughs> So you guys have all discussed uh, strategies for mitigating some of the challenges of the future in our local environment. But what do you guys see, um, if you could just comment on what you think are the greatest challenges, both in the near term and in the long term, uh, to kind of seeing your ideas come to fruition? <laughs> I think in, in the technology-based work I've shown, the, the entry point for, for things coming to fruition can be actually very low. I mean, if you think about a startup that has a really brilliant idea in dealing with the, the grid, uh, making it more resilient, or water distribution systems, you can actually have um, a startup idea and funding within, within a couple of years. And if the technology is fruitful and works, it could be up, scaled up quite, quite rapidly. But I think when you're thinking about large, very large-scale infrastructure projects like the, the Venice Gate, which probably won't be a good idea here, um, but similarly large structure, uh, infrastructure investments funded by federal government, then, then there's a huge barrier to actually get this off the ground, which is why I think in, in many of these ideas we're pursuing in the technology area, we, we think that the, um, uh, the ec economic drivers that might come about th through the changes might be a really good vehicle in lifting these things off, and we can do uh, quite, a, quite a lot of work there, I think. Well, I, I've just had one thing, which is um, events like this are really important, not just for, for us to communicate with everybody that's not from MIT, but I find these really incredibly important to speak to other professors that I may not have known before these events. There's a 1,000 professors at MIT. And we worked intimately to create this evening, and now I know what two brilliant engineers and scientists do, which I'm not. That leads to more communication and more potential innovation. And I will say that it's not that important if, if, if our ideas are uh, ultimately uh, you know, built or realized. That's not really what we're trying to do. We're trying to communicate that we need to start the conversation, and we need to get people interested in an event like this starts a conversation, and that's where the innovation starts to occur. And, and if you ask 100 people that are out there on the street randomly, probably most of them won't know what resilience planning is. They probably most of them won't know what a hurricane one would do with some, a little bit of sea level rise. So it's just really important to start the conversation and build stakeholders that will drive the process, and that's what we saw in New York. It's critically important to start the conversation. So it, our idea is I'm not attached to any of those ideas. And to add to this, um, the, the way we really also drive innovation and change and, and bring new opportunities is through the students. And I think in many cases, um, the last example I've shown was the, the class that we're teaching right now in the fall. 
And this is really the vehicle at MIT that we can really bring things around the world. We have thousands of alumni each year going out uh, and doing anything from working in companies, in government, um, and creating PhD theses and so forth around the world, really. And that's one really good way for us to make an impact. Um, we ourselves might not do this, right? Um, but I think it's our students who go out in the world and, 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 and bring, bring positive change. Uh, given uh, our experience with Katrina, uh, what do you think uh, the level of planning and implementation is now uh, in response to what happened there? Uh, are we simply replicating, uh, recreating the same problems, uh, especially around residential areas that, uh, that we had previously, or is there some improvement that I've missed? Um, New Orleans is a rather special case, and it's really not a happy story because even without climate change, you have, well, you certainly have sea level going up, but you also have subsidence of the land there. Uh, it's, it's a very risky place, and at some point in the future, unless something dramatic changes, people are going to come to the conclusion that you really can't save it anymore. So it becomes... As my colleague said a few minutes ago, it's not just a scientific decision, it's a scientific, political, social decision about what do you do to try to save it, and at what point does it become uh, a problem of diminishing returns? Um, do you relocate? Do you try to protect a small part of the city and try to remove or move the rest of it? These are very difficult questions. Okay, so um, I'd like to make a, a, an attempt at this one without using the E-word. Um, you know, after, after Sandy in New York, um, there was some funding allotted by Congress and by each state to begin to buy property at pre-Sandy value. Um, New Jersey, I think, has... Now uh, they were they allocated maybe 200 million and New York 300 million. Um, it's kind of an interesting experiment. So without eminent domain to offer people pre-storm value to move out and then restore their land uh, to absorb to sand dunes or landscape or parks. And so you know you could say, what if I was one of those homeowners? And that's one issue. Only a few dozen have done it. 
maybe even under a few hundred have done it. Not many people have taken up the offer. Some people just left. Uh, some people are rebuilding uh, and raising their first floor elevations above where the storm hit. So there's, there's also that issue is how do you rebuild? Um, the critical issue for me though in HUD, the project we did in Sandy was with HUD and HUD was absolutely adamant about this. You have to remove the most socially vulnerable people out of the flood zone and remove them and their houses that we, that we are subsidizing. Literally remove them. Uh, so this isn't unprecedented. And, and I think it, m more so than not using the, the E word, eminent domain, leaving the most socially vulnerable parts of our population in the most vulnerable parts of a hurricane zone is even worse than eminent domain. So we need to come up with a better way. We need to come up, come up with a better way to move them out of harm's way and do it properly, not by just taking, but by giving them a better situation. And I think um, that's for many parts of the population, not just the, the people at the low end of the socioeconomic spectrum. And there are 116,000 of these uh, units, I think, within the metro area. So not that dissimilar to what happened with Sandy. Studying this issue, um, as as you are, uh, pretty seriously, and um, either other universities or, or private research institutions, and how will they collaborate over the decades to really piece together this complex, complex puzzle? Well, I guess I'll start by saying, in my field, there are a lot of institutions around the United States and indeed around the world who are tackling pieces of this risk problem. Um, it's kind of interesting in a way that, at least in my field, risk, you know, assessing, as I talked about in my talk, uh, quantitatively assessing risk is not really considered to be at the core of a field like mine. We're basically out to, to understand how nature works and so forth, which is fine. But the problem is that it, risk assessment has is, is, is become a kind of a borderline issue. It's partly statistics, it's partly engineering, it's partly science doesn't really have a home, but you can see those homes developing. Universities are actually beginning to develop whole sections, even departments devoted to risk. So I think, at least in the United States, the, the whole community of universities is rising to that challenge. And I get invited to more and more uh, risk conferences looking at the science of risk. That's just one piece of the problem, of course. Yeah, I mean, much, much of the work I've shown is really typically involves multi-university collaborations. The work I've shown by Professor Amin involves a large National Science Foundation Center with multi-universities, industry involvement. So they typically span multiple universities. And, and as, you, as you said, within the university, MIT, we have typically multiple disciplines involved in doing this work, um, from mathematics to computer science to controls to the structural engineering. Um, so they usually require many disciplines so in, in actually tackling the problems. There's a lot of communication, a lot of collaboration. And we need, I think we need more of this. I think in, in, in a sense, the last years at MIT, we've had really a strong focus on creating problem-driven centers um, around things like transportation, around maybe climate in the future, 
uh, infrastructure, resilience, and it's driven by the fact that we cannot simply have scientists, engineers sitting in a room thinking about a solution. Um, it really requires large teams. I, I just want to mention one uh, which is really driving a lot from, from my, my view is Rockefeller Foundation and the 100, 100 Resilient City uh, program. And, and they're really dr the ones that are driving um, some of the rebuild by design efforts as well. And they have a br much broader view of resilience. Uh, resilience is you know, not just a, a flooding issue, it's, it's really well-rounded and it, and it touches all city agencies that they work with. Can you speak just briefly to the uh, uh, advantages and feasibility and cost of just raising the Charles River Dam? That's Marcus. Yeah, well, the cost in, in, the, in the example of Italy, I, the, the cost was uh, in, immense and actually required the, um, the Italian government to, to plan this over decades um, against a lot of opposition and ultimately it was being built. So I, I can't really speak exactly about the cost, but it would be it would be large, and it would likely be a barrier in actually literally in, in making this ever happen. Um, so I think uh, probably there are smarter solutions on a smaller scale um, that would be more cost effective, and they can pass the regulatory and um, political systems in a in a more feasible manner than that. Well, in, this, in, the, in the cases of urban flooding, you can think about um, building these sensors that I, that I spoke about where detecting early onsets of threats um, and acting on those by making smart decisions about where to pump water, for example, would be a possible scenario where if you do not have the information on flooding, you might be putting your pumps um, really at the wrong place and you're using all the machinery. So if you know where to put the pumps, um, and pump smart, um, you might be able to mitigate some of the effects. That would be an example. I, w I would just add to that. I mean, by the way, the questions are really yeah. incredibly good. So thank you. Mm -hmm. um, that, so to answer that question is, I, I just want to point out to beware of the silver bullet mentality on this issue. Um, you know, you have flooding that's coming in both directions. Mm -hmm. So the, 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 the big issue is we keep building and we keep building, not in Boston, but we keep building all the way out and out to 95 and past. So all that is the water coming out. So how's that water going to get out of the Charles? Every time you pave a driveway, that water ends up in the Charles, right? So you need, we need to slow water down in order to live within the current elevations of the Charles, for the water coming down, same with the other river. Uh, we need to rethink the way that we're building imper impervious surface everywhere. That's half the problem here. I think there's one in the back. How much is Boston protected by its by Cape Cod? And when you look at those major storms that have hit New England, they've all hit the southern shore of New England and just wondering about storm surges in Boston versus, you know, Connecticut shore, the Rhode Island shore? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Boston actually has, in a relative sense, less of a surge problem than the south coast of New England and Long Island. And 
the really big storms that have hit us historically, hurricanes, hmm. not including nor'easters, um, most of the very strong airflow is out of the south for, for very good reasons. So Narragansett Bay has a really, really large uh, surge problem, as does Buzzards Bay. These are south-facing bays. And Boston is an east-facing harbor, and to a large extent, it is protected from a lot of that flow from Cape Cod. That's the good news. But in addition to hurricanes, we have to worry about uh, northeast winter-type storms. Um, they produce surges, too. Less is known about the risk, but the general feeling is historically, and we actually have some very interesting uh, work that looks at surges recorded in the geological record, so we can go back thousands of years. Most of the really big ones are associated with tropical storms. Uh, over the years, there have been several schemes about moving the airport, or at least the runways, to the outer harbor. Is there anything active on that, or is that considered too uh, politically, economically, and or technologically difficult, even floating those runways? That's a good idea. I like to fly an airplane. I don't know. I'm not a. I I don't know, but I do know that in our model that we ran, the airport goes under pretty quickly. I mean, that's amazing. <laughs> so maybe we need some new solutions around the airport. That's the best I can do. Some more questions out there. Anybody find it curious that there's all this wonderful building going on on the Seaport District, and we know about all these things and these strategies for designing uh, with these rising seas and so forth, and we're not uh, applying any of these techniques to the new buildings, like raising the mechanical equipment, you know, and creating these uh, places where the water can uh, find its place, you know, and create recreation spaces and so forth you've talked about. Like, like be, and have, can you address the possibilities with Beacon Yards and Kendall Square area, which you guys are working on also? Does that make sense? Sure. I do think that many of the buildings are being designed to lift the mechanicals up, uh, especially the emergency uh, infrastructure inside generators. Uh, I, so I don't, I don't know if it's fair to categorize every new building as not having those new, those new codes in them. Uh, and I know, personally know uh, people that are at their own expense doing that as well. So whether the codes are restrictive enough, you know, that's another argument. But I do think that we have improve the code after seeing it could be better, could be worse. Um, the bigger issue for me is um, what are the evacuation routes for all those new people? Um, if we flood, the roads are flooded, I mean, hence the amphibious, uh, you know. <laughs> um, you know, one of our researchers suggested that we need exit, we need exit strategies from the water because you can't get anything in there to extract the people. And so that was, it's, it, 
you know, it's, it comes off as kind of a funny idea, but really we need to think of new ways of evacuation with all the new development, not, you know, not the normal way we usually think about it. Yeah, well, we need, we need multiple ways. There's a question here. I'd be curious how much you're thinking about the inverse, which is if you have, let's just assume that Boston is better run than Providence. Um, and you have a well-run city that is prepared. Should that preparedness include preparing for refugees? Because people, if you protect one city well, there are lots of people who will be in places that are not protected, and you protect one place well, it then becomes the place that needs to harbor others. And so does the system need actually a lot more slack of all kinds, including actually vacant housing as a preparation for this? And I wonder how that fits into your thinking. Hmm. <laughs> I don't want to answer all of them. I mean, You're challenging them. Yeah. I, I will say this, and it's not an answer, unfortunately, to your question. We have been focused tonight about adaptation, and the theme running through it is that the fact that we'll need to adapt is a fait accompli, but some of us haven't given up on the other side of the coin, which is mitigation. Can we stop this happening in the first place? And I simply wanted to say on behalf of my institution, MIT, that there's a lot of work going on at MIT on that side as well, particularly in the development of new uh, clean energy sources that may, in the end, help save us from having to deal with this kind of change. I think it's important to, to say that and to realize that we haven't completely given up the idea of, of preventing this change from happening in the first place. We have time for one okay. more question. Yeah. So, um, talking about um, um, price um, sensitivity, don't we risk a tremendous waste of resources with um, all of your doing, well, all of the things you're trying to do, when you have a federal regulatory framework that seems to be in competition to that? Well, the, I mean, I, I can say something because I talk to a lot of people in insurance. It's not just federal regulation. It's uh, state regulation as well. So states, you know, are responsible in the United States for regulating insurance. And that's a very complicated field in Massachusetts and elsewhere that have led to sort of imbalances and incentives for risk-taking. So, that's, again, it's not an answer to your question, but we have to look more broadly at regulation. Let's just answer uh, one piece of that question. Great question. Um, we're, we're working with a bunch of our master's students now. We decided to run a class looking at climate impact in Florida, simply because Florida won't, the, you know, uh, Florida won't recognize the term climate change. So, we decided that we're gonna bring 12 of our really bright students down there and work with two of the county offices who will recognize the term uh, when most appropriate for them to recognize the term. 
um, and actually redesign parts of their cities because, you know, imagine what that's like where they're not allowed to even use the term and they see impacts of flooding right before their very eyes impacting tens of thousands of people. And so what better place for MIT to intervene with our students right in the middle, right in the middle of that kind of um, stalemate? And I, and I think that's where, you know, that's where we can open up the conversation and maybe change some of those regulations ultimately or pressure people to think about changing them from our perspective. So I'd like to um, thank all of you for your tough questions, your very thoughtful questions. I'd like to thank our panelists. And I'd also like to let you know that there's a group of graduate students here. You'll find them. They have the big buttons that say, ask me. <laughs> and they um, would love to be asked questions at the reception following this. Uh, so seek them out. And again, thank you. And thank you, panelists. <laughs>